Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying the world of Jesus, and we hope to get you thinking about old stories in a new way. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to this podcast, and I want to remind you we're trying to make Jericho Road interactive. If you've got any questions you can send these to me at rwebster at saint-lukes.com, rwebster at saint-lukes.com, and I will answer your questions as best I can. We'll even try to put them into future podcast episodes. And speaking of interactive, this is this is the one podcast where you might want to have an open Bible and a marker or a pen if you've got one handy, because I'm going to get you to mark a couple of words in your Bibles at home. I also want to remind you that for the next few episodes, we've moved up the road from Corinth to Philippi, which is another place that Paul visited in the year 51 on his way to Corinth. And like the Corinthians, Paul started a movement there. And like the Corinthians, Paul wrote them a letter to encourage them. But Philippi is a very different letter to a very different place with very different people. So to get us started today, thinking about Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, I'm going to take us to a place on the coast of Israel. I I want you to um, think about a place called Caesarea Maritima, which is a lovely park that sits on the coast of Israel about halfway between Tel Aviv and Haifa. And what you see there uh, when you go, where you can look up pictures, is this large racetrack that dominates the scene. And what's cool about it is that it's not merely a commercial center uh, that was built by Herod the Great 20 years before Jesus' birth. And it's not merely the governor's headquarters, which would be the headquarters of the of the governor of the Judean district of, of the Roman Palestine, uh, which is a place where Pontius Pilate lived, actually, uh, but it was also a pleasure dome. It had like a Vegas quality to it. So just imagine that that Pontius Pilate lived in a place uh, that had races going on all the time, and it had all sorts of uh, fun and frivolity to lure ships off the Mediterranean so that they could trade with the caravans coming from the interior. I mean, Caesarea Maritima was quite a place, and in 1961, they found one of the most important archaeological finds of the century, really, they call it the Pontius Pilate stone, which is a which is a piece of of you know stone with Pontius Pilate's name on it, which is simply to say that it's the first archaeological evidence outside of Scripture that we have that Pontius Pilate was in fact a person running Palestine at the time of Jesus. Okay, so it's just a really cool get. You know, you guys know I like to play a game called a get, where you can look at Scripture and then you could find something. So the Pontius Pilate stone might even be one of the more ultimate gets. However, Caesarea Maritima is also a get in the world of Paul or in Paul's life. In Acts chapter 24, we're told that Paul spent two years there in, in Roman prison between the years 57, 59, and it's quite possible that he wrote this letter to the Philippians from this jail. And what's remarkable about it, even though you really can't find the jail f- for certain because Romans didn't really have penitentiaries. They just basically had a cellar or a room that they could lock you up in. Uh, but no matter where he would have been, he would have been very, very near the racetrack. I, I've just I've got this in my mind that Paul uh, was imprisoned while the Roman world was just hurrying by. And even though we don't know while uh, where exactly this imprisonment might have happened, we do know this: it wasn't fun.
It wasn't fun. You can hear echoes of what Paul went through in other letters. Uh, just a little piece of scripture that you can that you can turn to is Second Corinthians chapter four, and the the second letter to the Corinthians is a letter that I like to call Paul's sad letter because he has been imprisoned the same way in Ephesus as he writes to them, and you can hear echoes of his suffering uh, as he as he writes this letter. Uh, Paul says this in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seven. But we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God. It doesn't come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. But make no mistake, he is he is perplexed and he is struck down and he is afflicted and Roman imprisonment just can't be any fun. And how about this? How about going through that experience? also beside a racetrack, as the Romans did what they always did, which is racing by and uncaring and not different in the way that the Bible asks us to be different. And this is the context of the letter to the Philippians. The Philippian Christians were worried about Paul. He's in jail getting beat up, and they're getting beat up by their neighbors and their friends uh, in this very, very Roman context. So they're suffering people, and they're trying to encourage each other and and answer the question, what to do? Which brings us to this passage that we're going to talk about today that I'd like to call Hope in Hard Times. This could be the title of this podcast, Hope in Hard Times. It comes from Philippians chapter 1, beginning with the 12th verse and ending with the 26th verse. Now, this is just a touch longer than what I normally will read, but this is very important because in this passage, we see a summary of what is happening to Paul while he's in jail alongside a racetrack. I'll start here at verse 12, chapter 1. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard that to everyone else, it, and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident by the Lord in my, by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I've been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering and my imprisonment. But what does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by my speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. For if I'm to live in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to to part and to be with Christ, and that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I'm convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. So here's where I want you to get your pen or your marker out, and I'm going to talk about uh, this passage in a structural way. Paul didn't dash this stuff off. This this passage contains a careful literary device called an inclusion, which brackets thought by repeating a word. 
I do this all the time in my preaching. Gosh, in a sermon not long ago, I used the word believe, or I said, I believe. And then I would say some stuff, and then I would say, I believe, and I would say some stuff. So that at the end of the sermon, my hope is that what you would remember is that I actually believe. Well, the same thing happens here, and if you've got a marker or a pen, uh, you can mark this in your Bible. Uh, What he does is this. In verse 12, he says, What I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel. I want you to highlight the word spread in verse 12. Now I want you to skip down to verse 25, where he says, Since I'm convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Highlight the word progress. The word spread and the word progress are the same word, prokope, and they bracket this passage. Now, what's cool about this is this is a military word, which means army advancement. So he's using an army word for an army town. I had an experience like this when I was a minister living up in Decatur, uh, Alabama, which is very near Huntsville, which is the place of the, the Space and Rocket Center and Redstone Arsenal and NASA and all that stuff. I had a church full of engineers. And one of my flower guild people, she was actually getting the, 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 the flowers ready for Easter. She would go on to become the head of, of the Space and Rocket Center or something, some crazy big job like that. She was an engineer. So she said to me, Rich, if you don't like the flowers or the flower arrangement that we've planned, we can always vector something else. And I said to her, I'm not sure I know what you just said. Vector is not a church word. Or that's an engineer word. But you see, she's living in a world of, of math and of engineering. And so vector would mean something to her. And the same thing happened with Paul here, using a word that might mean battle. He's referring to, to the Philippians and to himself as Christian soldiers. What he means here is that no matter what, they are all playing offense together. I've got my own story around here. You know, we're all coming off a year of this COVID lockdown, and, and, and we're not finished with it yet, but at least we're starting to live again. And at this time the last year, we weren't doing anything but video on church, and the church was closed. And part of the problem, for those of you who may not know St. Luke's, is that we're just big. We're big like Walmart big. We can't even open the door without causing a super spreader. So what to do? And we have a lovely member here named Chef Jimmy, who's who's got a cult following in the neighborhood because he comes from a big Greek restaurant family. And he said to me a couple couple years ago, Rich, I want to cook for you. And I never really knew what that meant. But with the lockdown, we understood. Jimmy went and got our church kitchen board of health certified. And then we went and got all of our staff members uh, with a food handler's license. We all took the test. I think I made a 90. If I took it again, I will remember next time the temperature for fish. Uh, but it was. But we all prep for Jimmy and we all cook for Jimmy and we all serve food for Jimmy. We've got really the best takeout restaurant in our neighborhood uh, on Wednesday nights. But here's the point. In a time when we were locked down and we couldn't meet for church, I got to walk up and down the line of cars as people coming to pick up Jimmy's food. And I got to visit with people and to pray with their mama and, and, to, and to ask about them and to check on them. And we got to have church. And now at St. Luke's, we have a restaurant, which is a new way of playing offense. It's a new way of staying in touch with each other. It was a new way for us to just to not quit. And so this is the same thing happening with the Philippians. They're getting beat up and he's in jail alongside a racetrack, but they are not going to stop. Still, there's more here. I mean, Paul clearly has found meaning in suffering and he makes three points. You know, to get us thinking about that, I want you to think about Paul's own story and his own history. Um, 
we like to say that Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, right? He was riding to Damascus to round up some Christians, put them in chains, and and then uh, he's knocked off his horse by a bolt of light, and, and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Conversions rarely happen with a lightning bolt without some sort of soil underneath being prepped for this. And if you go back uh, just a few verses, you see that Saul was present. And by the way, Saul and Paul are the same names for the same man. He had a Jewish name and he had a he had a Roman name. He didn't change his name because of his conversion. But Saul held the coats of men who killed a, a, a man, young man named Stephen with rocks in the northern part of the city. Stephen was an early follower of of the church and and one of the first deacons. And while he's murdered there and Saul is watching, uh, he had to have known. We're not told what's in Paul's headspace as this is happening, but he had to have known. Stephen was a man from um, a Greek-speaking Jewish person like him. Uh, Stephen was a man with a prep school education like him. Stephen was a man from somewhere else like him. Stephen was, was a lot like Paul, except not like Paul. Stephen was free. He was free, and Paul had to have admired and wanted what Stephen had. So what, what Paul says here in this long passage that I just read to you is that his own suffering has become a witness. It's become a witness of courage and a witness of freedom in the face of Roman indifference alongside a racetrack. Um, he's also seen that his own suffering for the gospel has inspired confidence in other people. They want what he's got. Uh, they, they, they want to be free like Paul is free. It's even created opportunities for other people to share the faith and keep the movement going. When when I was graduating from seminary, our graduation was just like every other graduation. I mean, just like a high school graduation. We had a commencement speaker and we were all sitting out on the lawn. And of course, we're graduating from seminary. So that means I'm already imagining an office, you know, with lined with books and, and fried chicken on Sundays and everybody's going to respect me and love me. And and the, the, the bishop who was speaking to us said, if you're really good at this, um, men and women, if you're really good at this job of spreading the gospel, you might just go out there and get yourselves killed. Well, I didn't see that one coming. Uh, but of course, what he's doing is he's quoting Paul. The world is starving for freedom, if only freedom from fear. But make no mistake, if we do this work, they will come after us because we're going to get in the way of injustice and we're going to get in the way of in, in, indifference and we're going to get in the way of the same old meanness uh, that seems to spin around everywhere around here. As I like to say at St. Luke's time and time again, kindness is prophetic because there's not very much of that around anymore either. There's a, you know, in a podcast a few episodes back, we were talking about Mark's gospel. And there's this little detail when you read the gospel of Mark called the house. It's really a cool little, cool little detail, actually, because there's one house that's described at the beginning of the gospel, which is Simon Peter's house. And then they tend to go back to the house to talk. Jesus and his friends always need to go back to the house to process things. They need to go back to the house to learn. And so they, they're always going back to the house. And if it's Simon Peter's house, then then there are all sorts of possibilities that, that stream or that spring out of the stories. And I just want to read one of these to you. This is Mark chapter 9, and it's beginning with the 33rd verse, and it goes like this. And by the way, these are the same reflections that Paul had as he was in prison alongside a racetrack. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another, who was the greatest? And he sat down and called the twelve, said to them, 
whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them. Taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me, not me, but the one who sent me. You know, what's cool about that. If if that's Simon Peter's house and that child is probably Simon Peter's kid. And so he took his own child up in, in, into Jesus' arms, which I'm sure Simon Peter never forgot as he went on to do great things. And And simply the message is this. It doesn't matter how the job gets done. Our our own jockeying for success or our own our own place in the world just doesn't matter. And we can be free now knowing that God is free to work through us and in us and around us in, in amazing ways, but also free to work, work through other people too. Uh, so again, we've got the freedom to serve. Well, Paul also has one more conclusion, which happens while he's imprisoned alongside a racetrack, and that is that he knows he can always rejoice. He tells them to rejoice. And if you heard it carefully, he repeats it for emphasis. And Paul is not whistling in the dark here, but rather he's rejoicing because he's looked back and he's seen how God has been at work in his own life. He's, he's looked back and he's seen even the ugly parts, the parts where he held the coats while the men killed that boy, Stephen. He, he remembers the ugly parts where he's lost his temper or lost a friend. He remembers of the ugly parts, but he also remembers the good parts and how God will close doors and open open windows and, and, and work through him and, and bump around him and make sure that the kingdom of God continues to spread, advance, an army word for an army people, uh, advancing the gospel even in spite of him sometime. and he rejo- sometimes. even He's rejoicing over things that have happened. He's even rejoicing over things he hadn't even seen yet. So I do something like this at St. Luke's and in, in, in all ministers get to do this. It's a real honor. People let us into their lives. And when people can, I will make an appointment for them to come to the chapel at St. Luke's uh, before a big event like a surgery or something like that. And what I'll try to do, if people will meet me for prayer at the church, I will sit down with them and I'll ask them questions. And I'll say, well, you got a bad biopsy. And, and they'll say, yes, and I'm really afraid. Or I've got a long recovery and I'm really afraid. And then we'll think back. And we'll say, well, gosh, if, if you hadn't gone to the doctor when you did, they wouldn't know what they know now. Or, or if this doctor hadn't sent you to this specialist, then you wouldn't be where you are now. And you, you can look back and see God at work throughout the, even the bad stuff or the, even the bad news. God is in it somehow, protecting and guiding and healing. And, and then what we'll do is we'll pray for complete healing. We'll pray for the team that's going to care for them. And we're going to pray for the surgery that's to come. And what we're doing is we're is the hard work of rejoicing. We're rejoicing even in the midst of hard times, and we're rejoicing even in the face of what hasn't happened yet. We're rejoicing. We're claiming, if you will, uh, the good news of God in Christ for us. This is how they got through it. This is how Paul got through imprisonment alongside a racetrack. This is how the Philippians got through a social uh, social suicide of being Christians in a Roman army town. And this is how they would keep the movement going. Now, this podcast is a little bit of a postscript. Um, the Christian movement would grow in Philippi. In time, over about 500 years, there would be seven magnificent churches built uh, in Philippi between the 4th 
and the end of the sixth centuries, which makes Philippi as a as an archaeological site one of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And one of these places that you want to see when you go there is something called Basilica B. Uh, Basilica B, they're rebuilding it. They're actually slowly just sort of bringing that thing up out of the ground. And it's got these huge columns. It's hard to even imagine how big this thing would have been. It was a rival church to churches in Thessalonica and in Constantinople. It was styled after the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople. Huge dome, marble, all this wealth. It's incredible. It's curious what happened in, in Philippi, given what we're going through right now. Uh, Philippi got rocked two ways. One, there was an earthquake, and then there was a plague. Uh, there was actually a global pandemic in the late 6th century that killed a fifth of the population of the Mediterranean basin. And so Philippi never really quite came back, and they never really were able to rebuild Basilica B like the archaeologists are rebuilding it now. Here's my point. Seven magnificent churches built in Philippi. Paul didn't build those. Paul didn't build these. Paul didn't build Basilica B. He didn't think about Basilica B. He wasn't thinking about Basilica B when he was in prison alongside a racetrack. What he was thinking about was um, relationships and freedom and courage and hope and forgiveness and grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ moving through the lives of people who had hope in hard times. The Philippians just did what you know we always do, which is take our eye off the ball and start um, building monuments and and protecting wealth and and right and looking at things that we can control. And somebody gets to be the king, and somebody gets to be the bishop, and and that's all fine. But let's remember the core of the message, and the message is this: God has been with us. God will be with us. And we will rejoice. So I'll finish this podcast with a question. And it goes like this. How have you seen God at work in your story? How have you seen God at work in your story? And how can you rejoice in what God's going to do for you next? Well, thanks, everybody. And I look forward to seeing you as we continue this journey through these amazingly brave people called the Philippians and their friend Paul. See you next time.